All right. Last time we discussed the millennium, we discussed that there were four views. I'd like to actually pursue a couple of the views and actually attack them and, and show where they are wanting in their interpretation of the Bible. The first one is post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. You may recall that post-millennialism believes that the world it was improving from the time of Christ and the day of Pentecost, from that time onward, improving, uh, or, or worsening, I should say, worsening from that time until A.D. 70, and then improving and bettering. Everything is becoming more and more godly and Christian from A.D. 70 until our day. And their view says that the world will proceed like this so that it's almost Christian or fully Christian in every area of society, and then Christ returns to receive a perfect kingdom or near-perfect kingdom. That's what they believe. And a part of their belief has to do with saying the Great Tribulation happened in A.D. 66 to 70. A.D. 66 to 70, that's the time of the Great Tribulation because that's the time of, of Nero and also uh, the, the subsequent emperors and the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. So Nero, according to that view, is the Antichrist. He is the Antichrist. And if not Nero, then his successor, which would have been either Vespasian or Titus, one of the, his successors would be the Antichrist. But typically, they say it would be Nero. And furthermore... Among those who believe in post-millennialism, some of them, not all, but some of them believe that Christ returned invisibly in A.D. 70. Christ returned invisibly in A.D. 70. And lastly, some of them believe that the resurrection of the dead, the bodily resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, that general resurrection occurred in AD 70. This is what some of the post-millennialists believe. They all believe that the world has been improving since AD 70, and they all believe the Great Tribulation happened before AD 70, from 66 to 70, and they all think that Nero or one of the, his successors was the Antichrist. They all think that, but then some of them believe that Christ... Uh, return was an invisible return and the general resurrection was an invisible not a visible or physical resurrection so let me address these points that the post-millennialists make and and see why the scriptures bring their position up as wanting the the first reason the betterment of the world notice in second thessalonians chapter 1 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, what the Apostle says about our situation and what deliverance we have from our persecutions and afflictions. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. Here we'll see that Persecution is the lot of the church. This is what God has allotted to us. 
And the only one who will deliver us from this ultimate persecution is Christ, and when he does, he will punish the wicked. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 1 to 6, in verses 1 to 6, we see how the apostle is thanking God for the faith of the Thessalonians that's greatly enlarged through in the midst of all their afflictions. He's praising them because they're maintaining their faith, they're maintaining also their love for each other, and it's even growing. Their faith is growing and their love for each other is growing even though they're being afflicted. This, according to verses five, 4 and 5, is for the purpose of God considering the church worthy of the kingdom of God. It becomes worthy when it has been purified and comes forth as gold. The, the afflictions are meant for the good of the church to take away the dross, the, all of our impurities, so that we come forth as pure gold. This is the kind of uh, purpose that God has in mind for the affliction of the church. But that's not the only reason. Verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It will be just or righteous for God to punish our afflictors, our persecutors. It will happen that God will punish them for all of the injustices they commit against us. Verse 7. Now when this happens, notice what also happens. He's going to repay them according to verse 6. And according to verse 7, he'll give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. The church will be relieved of their afflictions. When the wicked are punished, then the church will be relieved of her afflictions. Those two go side by side. They are hand in hand. One does not happen without the other. Well, when does all this happen? Well, the word when is actually there in verse 7. 
this double purpose of God, punishment on the wicked and relief to the church happens, verse 7, when? The word is actually there. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, on that day, there is an ultimate special day when the Lord returns. And He will be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. We will marvel at what He does on our behalf. And in the meantime... All of this is working towards the glory of God. So, I don't see here any place where the church overcomes, the church overcomes all afflictions by any other means but by Christ's visible return. I will emphasize and show and prove the visible part of it in a few minutes. But you see here that when Christ returns then we are relieved of affliction. When He returns, we are relieved of affliction. There is no hint that the world improves, becomes better, more godly, more Christian. It does not say anything about that. That the whole of society all around the world, every aspect of society, entertainment, business, politics, all of these areas of society will be Christianized and then Christ returns. There's no hint of any of that. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2 1. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. That's the topic. That's the topic at hand with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. When He comes, we will be gathered to Him. We, we will be with Him. Verse 2. However, there's a problem. Verse 2 explains, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What's the problem? A spirit, a message, or letter has disturbed them, and pro probably all of them, all of those means, in some way, one way or another, has disturbed the Thessalonian church. To the effect, what was the purpose of those disturbances? To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That day that he mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 10. That day is this day of the Lord. The problem that they were facing was that a spirit, a message, or a letter was telling them that the day of the Lord has come and they were disturbed by it. Obviously because they were told it came and you could not participate. It came and you were not a part of it. It came and God the Lord Jesus specifically left you out of it. He excluded you from it. You say you're Christians, but you're really not because you missed it all. That is what disturbed them. 
verse 3. He explains what will actually happen. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Nothing new here. He has to repeat it now in written form to the Thessalonians that verse 3, it's easy to be deceived, but do not be deceived. Let no one deceive you. Because the apostasy has to come first. This great falling away, wide scale, immense falling away from the faith. People who say they believe, but end up walking away from Christ and denying Christ. The apostasy has to come first. The man of lawlessness, son of destruction, two names for the same person. Man of lawlessness, son of destruction. What will he do? He will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. This one, Antichrist, will oppose and exalt himself and he's going to go into the temple of God and claim to be God. As far as we know in church history, neither Nero, Vespasian, or Titus did any of this. Yes, in the case of Nero and Titus, they did persecute Christians, but they did not go into the temple of God, which was destroyed in AD 70. They didn't go there and claim to be God. They didn't do so. And yet, the post-millennial view says that all of this happened between AD 66 and 70. This is, that's when this happened, but we don't have any record that this happened, and we don't have any record that Jesus actually came and that the saints were gathered to him in any way. There is no sense in which proper physical, visible sense in which Jesus returned and that the church, we the church, existent, existing at, at that time, were gathered to him, collected and to him. We weren't with him in that visible way. And then he says, verse 6, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For, meaning that something or someone is restraining him, and in due time this man of sin, man of lawlessness, will be revealed. Verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Verse 8. In due time, when the restrainer is taken out of the way, in due time, the lawless one will be revealed. It will be obvious who it is. 
He is uh, a secret. He's undisclosed, but he will be revealed. And then what will happen to him according to verse 8? The Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The Lord Christ is going to pronounce a word of judgment and slay him when he returns. Well, this didn't happen in A.D. 70, if A.D. 70 is the return of Christ. Because Nero ceased being the emperor, he died in A.D. 68, two years before the destruction of the temple. The Lord, even if he came invisibly in A.D. 70, did not put him to an end by his coming. It did not happen that way. So the post-millennial view that Nero was the Antichrist does not fit. It does not fit. It also does not fit with what follows, verses 9 and following, that the man of lawlessness performs miraculous powers. Power, signs, and false wonders. And he has the deception of wickedness. He has basically satanic powers to perform miracles, like the sorcerers of Egypt did. Like the sorcerers of Egypt for the first plagues, they were able to repeat the miracles of Moses. Well, this is the satanic influence that he will have to perform miracles. We have no evidence that Nero, Vespasian, or Titus perform miracles and deceive people by their miracles. No evidence whatsoever. So, these two chapters of Revelation, I believe, do not give any credibility to the post-millennial view that the world improves, that the tribulation already happened, that the Antichrist was one of the Roman emperors, especially Nero, or that Christ returned invisibly, and that the resurrection of the dead happened at that time. Invisibly. Nothing like that. In fact, let's look at other passages which explain that there has to be a, a visible return of Christ. A visible return of Christ. The first one is Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, a visible return. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Acts 1, 9. This is Jesus with the twelve, and he's about to ascend into heaven. We know, according to verse 3, that he demonstrated that he rose from the dead with many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days. Many convincing proofs. And after that period, at the end of that period of 40 days, it says, verse 9, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Two men, angels, are telling the disciples, why do you keep gazing intently into heaven? You, you have seen Jesus for 40 days demonstrate himself 
by many convincing proofs that he rose from the dead physically, bodily. You could touch him. You know that that happened. It happened. This one that has just been raised up, taken up into heaven, into the clouds, in this way, there's no point in looking. You have to move on with what he has commissioned you to do. That is to preach the gospel to all the world. You have to move on to those things. Because, verse 11 says, This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He's going to return in the same way eventually. No one knows the day or the hour. Eventually he will return just like this. Visibly. You will see him with your own eyes. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 7. Revelation 1 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. John says, Here, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. This is an apparent echo of at least Acts chapter 1, and we will see that it's also alluding to a couple of other passages. Next, we see Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, 15. 24, 15. Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. By the way, the abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place, is most often, correctly, the same as the man of lawlessness, son of destruction of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Antichrist. He is the same one. This, this abomination of desolation is the same one as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, man of lawlessness, son of destruction. So when you see him standing in the holy place, the holy place has to be the temple of Jerusalem. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, 
so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, back to 15. 15 and following, 15 to 20, the Antichrist or abomination of desolation will reveal himself and when this happens, the people should flee. Flee for safety. Flee for their lives. Verse 21. 21 makes a very important statement. For then... At this time that everyone should flee because of the abomination of desolation. For then, at that time, there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until, until now, nor ever shall. Now I beg to ask a post-millennialist, when it, they say that this happened in AD 66 to 70, in AD 66 to 70, that this period was the Great Tribulation, why does it say nothing like this happened since the beginning of the world? Nothing like this happened since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. How could it be that that period of suffering, which was a bad period, there's no doubt, it was certainly atrocious, the things that the Roman emperors did, especially Nero and Titus, the things that they did against the Jewish people. It is certainly bad. They did massacre a lot of people. They did destroy the temple. They did destroy Jerusalem. That is certainly true. However, since that time, there have been very, very malicious dictators who have massacred Millions upon millions of people. The Soviet Union, 40 million people. The Chinese communists in the last 60 to 70 years have over 100 million people. Hitler, of course, massacred at least 6 million Jews and others, but mostly Jews. So, how could anyone say that the worst period of human suffering, the greatest tribulation, already happened in AD 66 to 70. It seems absurd to me that one cannot hold that position and understand reality properly. But also it says that, verse 27, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, what does lightning do? It occurs quickly, but it also occurs visibly. Quickly and visibly. And this is what Jesus says in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the tribulation of those days, well, which days? Verses 21 to 22. 21 to 22. That's the tribulation he just mentioned in 21 to 22. 
immediately after, not a thousand years later, two thousand years later, or indefinitely until the church Christianizes the whole world. I don't see how to read it that way. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, there will be these natural phenomena, natural disasters and miracles. The sun, the moon, the stars, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then verse 30, 30 and 31. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's like Revelation 1.7. That's why John speaks that way. And even Jesus is alluding to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 12, when he says this about all the tribes of the earth. And so it does say again in verse 30, they will see the Son of Man coming, coming on the clouds, which also is a reference to Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where Daniel also says the Son of Man coming with the clouds. And then when the Son of Man comes, what will happen? The harvest, the great harvest at the end of the age, which Jesus mentioned in Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. In Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus said that at the end of the age, He will send His angels to harvest His people, His elect, from around the globe. That's Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. And then the interpretation is in verses 36 to 43. Verses 36 to 43, the interpretation. So these angels He sends forth will be sent with a great trumpet. They'll gather together His elect. Does that not remind us of 2 Thessalonians 2.1? And our gathering together to Him. Our gathering together to Him. And this will happen globally, all around the world, from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. This describes consistently the fact that there will be tribulation, persecution, and a visible return of Christ will end it for us, and then we will be with Christ when He comes, visibly. Another passage will be John chapter 14. John chapter 14. This actually is one of the key passages to prove the second coming, the coming again, or the return of Christ. John chapter 14, verse 1. John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We, we derive comfort in believing God and believing Christ. Whatever God said, whatever Christ said. That there are many dwelling places in His Father's house. And He goes to prepare a place for us. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. The coming again, the return of Christ, 
right there we have the phrase, come again. Just as we saw in Matthew 24, we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2, he's going to come again. And even Acts 1, 9 to 11, he will come in the same way in which you have seen him taken up. And that where I am, there you may be also. The troubles of the world and the anxieties of the world, the persecutions of the world, will torment Christians, will torment the church until Christ comes again to receive us so that we might be with Him and be in His Father's house forever. There He declares it clearly. Now, John 14, verse 19, 14, 19. Let's go to the, the concept, the biblical concept and prophecy of our resurrection. A bodily resurrection, not an invisible, immaterial resurrection, but a material, visible, and bodily resurrection. John 14, 19. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. Because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also. After a little while, the world will behold me no more. Jesus will not, after his resurrection, minister and preach and teach from place to place, city to city, village to village. He will not do that anymore, so the world will not see him. But you will behold me. He will manifest himself to the disciples, as we saw in Acts chapter 1, over a period of 40 days. He manifests himself with many convincing proofs. And then he says... Because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also. He's talking about living in a bodily resurrection, in a glorified body, in, a, in an immortal body. When he rises from the dead, because he rises from the dead, we shall also rise from the dead. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Remember that Lazarus died the brother of Mary and Martha. They don't understand what Jesus is about to do. So Jesus says, John eleven twenty three. Jesus speaks to Martha. Eleven twenty three. Jesus said to her, Your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This shows Martha's belief, true belief, that a day of resurrection will occur and that Lazarus will one day bodily rise from the dead. Because bodily, he's in the grave. And he's been there for four days. He's been there in the grave. So she's talking about a physical, material, visible, bodily resurrection. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus here declares that he is the source of eternal spiritual life and eternal physical life. He is the source of both. Eternal spiritual and eternal physical. The physical... In verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. 
He will rise from the dead even if he dies, and he'll live to life, to eternal life. And verse 26, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Whoever lives, and this is our only opportunity to believe in Christ, while we are alive, if we believe in him, we will never die the spiritual death. We will never die the second death. Revelation 21.8 The second death will not overcome us because we believe in Christ. This is what he's talking about. And one more location in John. John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verse 28. One last passage on the general resurrection that we will rise from the dead. John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. This is a key passage, not the only one, but a key passage that asserts that there is a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Those who did the good and those who did the evil, both groups will rise from the dead. Clearly stated here, this is why he says, All who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. Jesus will speak the word, and the good will come to a resurrection of life, eternal life, and the evil people will come who did the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment or condemnation. Other passages that speak of this are, are Acts 24.15, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Acts 24.15. Also Daniel 12 verses 2 to 3. Daniel 12, 2 to 3. 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Daniel 12, 2. So, the Bible leaves no room for an invisible return of Christ and an invisible resurrection of the dead, which supposedly happened in A.D. 70. All right, well, these are my misgivings and objections to post-millennialism. He who has ears to hear, let him hear.